Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music. Include it with Prime. A short note before we begin. Tonight's topic was originally covered on Nighttime in May of 2016. But as the production quality and overall style of the show has changed so considerably since then, I felt this story was more than worthy of a remastering from the ground up. So here it is. This is a rewritten, re-recorded, and an altogether brand new telling of one of the most chilling stories I've covered. Let's get to it. You are tuned to the Nighttime Podcast, focused on the fringe of Canada. In all corners of our country, if you ask around, you'll hear stories of ghosts or monsters that at some point in the area's history briefly made themselves known and wreaked havoc. This episode will describe one such case. It will feature a community crippled with fear and overcome by a feeling of defenselessness. A community in which its most vulnerable were preyed upon by a beast too frightening to dream up. Just like many of horror literature's greatest villains, by day this monster hid in the forest that surrounded the village, and only at night, under a cover of darkness, would it enter civilization and exercise its wickedness. But unlike horror's villains, what made this monster so terrifying is that he isn't a work of fiction. In fact, the community knew exactly who was preying on them. Tonight, in this episode of Nighttime, We'll hear the story of an infamous Canadian serial killer who, after a daring prison escape, stalked his community, murdering several elderly citizens, all the while hiding in the dense forest that surrounded the region. This is the story of Alan Legere, the monster of the Miramichi. And I've always felt that he graduated into becoming a serial killer when he went into that home. Now, we didn't know that when he escaped. We just knew that he was dangerous and we were afraid that he was coming back and that he might do something else. We had no idea, no idea, that in fact he was coming back not to steal some money and flee. He was coming back because he wanted to hunt humans in your machine. In covering Alan Legere's story, it's difficult to choose an ideal starting point as it seems that from the moment of his birth on a Friday the 13th and 48, his downward spiral had begun. Born poor, with a hatred for authority and a severe anger problem, Alan's early life would be dominated by violent outbursts, increasingly severe crimes, and a series of prison sentences. But as a testament to how wicked and how utterly vile this man is, his story, as I'll tell it, begins with a murder. His first, at least officially. We'll start on a Saturday evening in a rural area of New Brunswick called Black River Bridge. An elderly couple, John and Mary Glendenning, had just finished locking the door on a general store they've owned and operated for over 30 years. With the shelves restocked and the floors swept, the couple returned to their home which sits a hundred or so feet from the store. In following their long-standing evening routine, upon arriving home, John Glenn Denning fell into his favorite seat in the living room and turned on the evening news as his wife Mary went into the kitchen to prepare some tea. It seemed like every other Saturday night, up until the point a violent crash would break the silence and leave the front door a splintered mess. As Mary and John looked towards what used to be a door, they saw two men enter. Both had their faces concealed and both were holding rudimentary weapons. One a baseball bat, and the other simply a large rock. But before anyone had a chance to say much more than, who are you, the masked man with the large rock would charge at and bludgeon John Glenn Denning, instantly making his face nearly unrecognizable. As John's body fell from his chair, he'd see a third man, an older and heavier figure, stroll into the living room of the home. This third man calmly stood by watching as the masked men tied Mrs. Glendenning to a kitchen chair and the blood-soaked John Glendenning begged for mercy. What would come next is a sexual assault against Mary 
demands to open a safe in the home, and much, much more violence. It would only end when Mrs. Glendening lost consciousness from one of the many blows she took. And when she finally came to, she managed to make her way to a telephone and dial 911. Despite being so severely injured, she was able to explain that she was robbed, raped, beaten, and that she believed she was about to die. When help finally arrived, Mary was found nearly dead on an upstairs bedroom floor. Her facial injuries were so severe that they weren't even sure it was her initially. And as far as her husband John, he was found slumped behind the door of another upstairs bedroom with his hands tied behind his back and the cord from an alarm clock tied tightly around his neck. He was already beyond any hope of surviving, but Mary, miraculously, would recover and tell the story of the three men who brought terror to their home. Now, it would only take two days for arrests to be made, but just like I said earlier, we may already be in the middle of discussing a very disturbing murder, but this is only the beginning. The subject of our story, he hasn't yet earned infamy as the monster of Miramichi, but we're going to get there. First, we'll continue hearing the unfolding story surrounding the murder of the shopkeeper, John Glenn Denning, and the brutal attack on his wife, Mary. And we're going to welcome a guest to take over the storytelling from here. And it's someone who knows the horrible story of Alan Legere inside out. Rick McLean is a highly respected author and journalist who, during the time of the Glenn Denning murder, was the editor of the local newspaper, the Miramichi Leader. As it would turn out, Rick, as a local with boots on the ground, would lead the reporting on the many twists and turns in the Alan Legere saga and would eventually co-write two best-selling books about the case. Rick agreed to share his first-hand account of this story, and quite honestly, it's mesmerizing to hear him tell it. So let's get to it. We'll pick up the narrative just after the crime against the Glendennings. As far as the, the Glenn Denning murder uh, and attack on Mrs. Glenn Denning, do you, do you recall first hearing about that and reading the news reports of that crime? Uh, I remember that the uh, Glenn Denning one happened. It was late in June. Uh, we knew roughly you know, where the area was, Black River Bridge. And I, this was 1986. I've been the editor for a couple of years. I think this was the first murder that I was responsible for leading a news team on. Where there were, we had four reporters staff photographer uh, and a second editor. So we were a pretty good news team for a, a twice-weekly newspaper. And uh, we found out pretty quickly what the, what the gist of it was. Uh, the police weren't saying much, uh, and the first report that we had wasn't overly detailed. Our reporter was, was young and didn't really know exactly what was going on. Uh, fairly quickly, we got the idea, the word leaked out at a small community, uh, that there were a couple of teenagers who were apparently involved, but the gang leader, the leader of the three, was very well known to, well, everybody in the community, Alan Legere. So then it became a case of sort of sticking with the police while they were hunting around for these people. And it didn't take much, didn't take very long. Legere was rounded up fairly quickly. He was still in the community. And the two teenagers, I think, had fled to Ontario, and they surrendered themselves a few days later. So it really sort of all happened and was resolved in terms of arrests very, very quickly. But a lot of the details didn't come out until the trial. Now, the trial was an absolute sensation. For the locals who knew him, it wasn't a big surprise that Alan Legere was involved in this. To say he had a reputation for violence would be an understatement. Alan Legere's name was like the boogeyman in Miramichi long before he was arrested for the Glendening murder. He had a reputation for being volatile. Uh, he also, there were stories that had been told for years of people that he knew uh, that would wake up and he'd be standing at the foot of their bed looking at them. He called it creepy crawling, uh, and he would creepy crawl into someone's house just to show that he could get in even though the doors were locked. And then he would just stand there and look at them until they woke up. Uh, so he had a, a reputation of, of being a very strange individual, uh, bright, you know, not a genius, but it, but bright. Uh, people who had known him in school said he had the potential to be a good student, but he just was, was unable to focus on it. 
Uh, by this time, he was large. He'd been picked on when he was younger, including by my father and his brothers, apparently. And he started working out in weights when he was very young. So he's only about five foot eleven, but he was barrel-chested, big arms, and you know, someone who saw him fight said he fought a lot like a cat, scratching, clawing, biting, rolling around in the ground. It was strictly no, no holes barred if he was going to get into a scrap with him. With Alan and his two much younger accomplices in custody, the time would come for the trial, a trial that would turn out to be one of the many spectacles that were about to play out in Miramichi. To sort of set the scene here, the actual courtroom was very small. It was sort of two stories high with a balcony on the second floor and red carpet and it's all wood. It was over 100 years old, uh, so it was, it was built as if it was something from a Shakespearean theater. And then you had these two teenagers uh, who were well known for being sort of local thugs and members of families with a history of being involved in sort of B&Es and stealing stuff. And then Alan Legere, who had a, had a very fearful, fearsome reputation for being dangerous. The two teenagers pleaded guilty the first week. Uh, so then everyone's wondering if Legere is going to plead guilty, but of course he doesn't, which means that the three-week trial has to go ahead, which means that the lone survivor, uh, John Glenn Denning's wife, Mary, who was the victim of ferocious attack, sexual assault, left for dead, uh, we end up, as a result of this testimony, we hear the 911 operator. She testifies. We hear the telephone call. We hear the 911 operator sort of talking to Mary, trying to calm her, telling her, you know, I'm going to stay with you. It's going to be all right. The police are on their way. Staying with her right up to the moment when the police officer came on the phone and said, we're here. We've got it now. And then the most remarkable part of all would be uh, that Legere decided to testify. Now, there's no requirement for a person accused of crime to testify. You have a legal right not to. But Legere was determined to. I think, you know, Legere was obviously a sociopath. And he had spent his whole life lying to people and convincing them of things that weren't true. So I think he thought he could do this on the stand. I was there that day when he came out and testified. I, I sat next to our reporter and watched as he took the stand. And the first words out of his mouth were, I wasn't even there. As soon as he said that, I swung my head to the right and I looked at the jury and I turned to our reporter and went, he lost them. They don't believe that. And then the prosecutor, you know, a judge back then was a prosecutor, Fred Ferguson, got up and really by the time he was done with him, he had demolished Legere's credibility. So the, the jury came back the next day and they uh, convicted him in no time flat. And so really, for us, the case was over. It was sensational. It was three weeks of remarkable story of day and nights for us as, as, a, as a newsroom. But then he was gone, out of sight, out of mind, in a maximum security prison, exactly where he belonged. Uh, but the maximum security prison was in Renews, which is a short drive from where the courthouse is, 30, 40 kilometers away. With Alan Legere now arrested, convicted, and sentenced for the murder of John Glenn Denning? You would think the story's about to wrap up, but it's far from it. It's at this point in the story that Alan Legere would set into motion a series of events that would make him known across Canada as a serial killer responsible for nearly unimaginable brutality. And what happened was Legere had been clearly plotting all along that he was going to get back out. Uh, the first reports I was hearing from guards I knew of was that Legere had gone squirrely on the inside. He basically turned into a caveman. His hair was long. Uh, he, his room was disgusting. And then at some point, I think he figured it out and he cleaned up. He stopped being a problem. He became a model prisoner. Well, what he was doing was he was plotting. He was trying to get into a position where the guards would see him as a no-muss, no-fuss inmate they wouldn't have to worry about. What he was also doing was he was arranging, apparently he poured urine in his ear or something and got an ear infection. And, you know, he was arrested in 86, he was convicted in 87. Finally, by 89, they're, they're going to take him to a medical specialist for his ear in Moncton, a place where he used to live. And this is what he'd been planning for. He had the guards lulled into a sense of security. He was going to a hospital uh, that he knew in a city that he knew. And when he got there, what they didn't know was he had inserted the television antenna from his TV up his, up his rectum 
and he had made a makeshift key. He was carrying a coat with him, and they didn't know that he had, in essence, unlocked his handcuffs on the drive, the 150-kilometer drive to Moncton. He said, look, I have to go to the bathroom. They let him go. They weren't supposed to let him go alone. He was basically went into the bathroom, threw off the handcuffs, and burst out the door of the hospital bathroom, waving what they thought was a knife, it was the TV antenna, and shot past them. Now, guards in this situation are allowed to have guns with them because the concern that an inmate might get his hand on a gun. So all they had was pepper spray. Well, pepper spray is no good when you're spraying the back of a guy's head when he's running away from you. He burst past them. He was out the door. He went running into the parking lot. Uh, there was a woman there. I think she had a bird in a cage or something in her car. And he kidnapped her, the bird, and the car, forced her out of the car shortly thereafter, fled to a section of Moncton he knew, dumped the car, and vanished into the woods. And we heard a lot of that in real time because we were in the newsroom and the phone rang and our reporter who had covered him in court was her husband who had a police scanner. And I remember, I'll never forget, her face turned white and she turned to me in the newsroom and she said, Legere has escaped in Moncton. And she said, my husband's on the line listening to the scanner and I, I told her, I said, tell him to put his phone next to the scanner and I punched the button in the newsroom so that Everything from his telephone was going over the paging system so the entire building could hear it, and everybody stopped moving. Uh, because we all knew, one, or we were confident of one thing, he was coming back. We were absolutely sure that he had no intention of running away. He was coming back. Wow. And now when that, when that story broke and you started reporting on it, telling New Brunswickers that Legere's escaped, what was the reaction the, the average person would have had of this news? Well, there was a tremendous amount of fear, not just in Miramichi. Uh, there were reports of a car stolen in the Turo area that actually ended up being found in Miramichi, so he almost certainly was involved in that in some fashion or another. Uh, there were sightings as far away as Nova Scotia, uh, other parts of Nova Scotia than Turo, uh, other parts of New Brunswick, uh, PEI. Everybody seemed to have had a sighting of Alan Legere. Almost certainly they didn't. But the understanding was that this is a guy who had slaughtered an elderly man and done his level best to slaughter the man's wife. Uh, the two teenagers who'd been in the break and enter with him said, because they didn't testify in court, but they would later tell their story, and they said, you know, the deal was they were supposed to go into the Glendenning home for this B&E and steal a safe. Lugier was supposed to be down the road with the getaway vehicle. But the two teenagers lost control of the elderly man, who, although he was 69, pushing 70, was strong as a bear, and they couldn't control him. And Lugier came into the house and beat the man until, I mean, when they found his body, he had a shoe print on his face. And they said it was as if the moment Legere walked into that home, he was someone else. And I've had this discussion with uh, prosecutors, lawyers, experts, and my feeling is that Legere was fairly typical for a sociopath who turns into that rare subgroup, uh, which is that he is a serial killer. It takes a long time to make one. Typically, serial killers are white males, 30s, somewhere in their 30s. He was 38 years old. And my guess is when he walked into the Glendenning home in June of 1986, he had all the things that he wanted. He had probably imagined them for years. Serial killers tend to have rich, uh, sort of imaginative lives in their heads, and he had been dreaming about this for the moment, and he was in a home with an elderly couple under his control, lots of time. And I've always felt that he graduated into becoming a serial killer when he went into that home. Now, we didn't know that when he escaped. We just knew that he was dangerous, and we were afraid that he was coming back and that he might do something else. We had no idea, no idea, that in fact he was coming back not to steal some money and flee. He was coming back because he wanted to hunt humans in Miramichi. In the weeks after Legere's escape, the people of Miramichi had little reason to be afraid. Aside from a handful of burglarized sheds and a stolen car or two, the days passed by quietly. But just after a month after Legere's escape, everything would change. It all started with an early morning 911 call reporting a structure fire in the heart of the city. The burning building contained Flam's grocery store a business that seemed to straddle the line between a convenience store and a grocery store. But for Miramichi, the business was a perfect fit, and Flams, to put it simply, was beloved. 
And a lot of that had to do with the 75-year-old owner, Annie Flam, who'd run the store since the late 30s and still, even in her senior years, sat behind the counter from 9 a.m. until 11 p.m. every day. And when Annie wasn't in the store, she was just upstairs, relaxing in the upper-level apartment she shared with her sister Nina. Now, as the firefighters responding to the reports of the blaze approached the building, it appeared as though the fire was coming from Annie and Nina's apartment, rather than the downstairs grocery store. But if firefighters were expecting the cause to be a grease fire or a mishandled cigarette, they'd receive a rude awakening as soon as they kicked open the door that led to the blazing building's upstairs apartment. Immediately, they were met with the horrific sight of the elderly Nina Flam dragging herself down the stairs towards them. And Nina was so badly burned, initially she appeared to be naked. It was only as they approached her did they realize that her nightgown was on. It had just melted into her skin. And as disturbing as this scene was, what the firefighters found back in the building made Nina look like the lucky one. Her sister, the 75-year-old shopkeeper Annie, was found burnt beyond recognition, neatly tucked into her bed. Everyone, I think, was quite sure uh, that when the flam attack happened and Annie was killed and Nina was sexually assaulted, and then she described it later, she said the man sexually assaulted her, and then she said the most bizarre part was that he tucked her into bed and then he set the room on fire. Uh, we thought that was Legere. It, it sort of it fit the pattern. Legere was known more as a B&E guy, and we thought, okay, he attacked... Annie Flam, this you know, 80-year-old little old lady that kids used to go into her store to buy candy. He attacked her because she was an easy target, and he would figure that there was probably some money in the house, and that would be his getaway money. Uh, it certainly got national coverage. In fact, I can recall driving by it uh, just before I gave an interview on CBC's As It Happens. But the assumption was that he was finding money to make good on his getaway. We never expected him to stay around. We figured... I mean, logically, why would he? Everybody knew what he looked like. The police were on the hunt for him. So the assumption was that he had stolen this money, he had murdered one and assaulted another, and we didn't understand what the signs of what had happened with Nina Flam. Serial killers have a ritual. They sort of have a pattern for their killings. There are certain things they like to do. They like to do them in a certain order. They like to attack certain kinds of individuals. Could be social status, could be male, female, depending on age. And what we didn't understand that, in fact, we were seeing the first signs of a, more, of a developing ritual. In the first attack with the Glen Dennings, he'd gone into a home of an elderly person, or in this case, a couple. Uh, there'd been a violent attack, but he had these two teenagers with him, and everything hadn't sort of, it wasn't well planned. Well, now he goes into the Flam home, the store in the attached house, and he has more time. There's no rush. And it turned out that physical attack, beating people, and then sexual assault, and tucking the woman into the bed, and then setting the home on fire were all part of his ritual. We didn't know that. We just, you know, these things happened, and we thought it was bizarre, and that was the end of it. And we assumed, because the attack happened in late May, around the 25th, I think it was, sometime around like that, in May, we assumed he was gone. Uh, logically, we, you know, there was no panic in the community. There was, he came back, he attacked somebody, and now he's who knows where. And after uh, Annie Flam's murder, yeah. do, do we know what his activity was? Was he hiding in the woods, or, or where was he? It took us a while to figure out that uh, Lucier was probably still around. There were a series of attacks that, looking back on it, because we should have realized. There were other attacks that fit this this pattern of the ritual, uh, there was an elderly woman who came home to her house. She'd been told that it, it was on fire. Police put out the fire, and they discovered that her clothes had been piled on the bed and set on fire. Now, this was an elderly woman living alone in her home, and her clothes were piled on the bed and set on fire. It was almost certainly Lucier. There was another attack involving an elderly couple, wouldn't have been half a mile from our newsroom, half a mile from my parents' house. Uh, elderly couple in their home, guy bursts into the home, gets the two of them under control, but then uh, one of them uh, regains consciousness, flees the home. The attacker loses control and flees. It's almost certainly Legere, right? These are, these are both ritualistic in terms of the people that he was targeting, the way that he was targeting them in their home, 
the time of day in the evening, having them under control so he could take his time. Uh, all of the pattern was there. It was just that he lost control in one case of the couple, and in the other, when he broke into the home, the woman wasn't there. So he had he'd clearly developed a ritual that he was growing increasingly elaborate. But what was happening was he was having a lack of success. Now, at the same time, he... You know, everyone always suspected later that he was receiving some help, and I think that was probably true. There was there's an underworld in Miramichi as there is anywhere, and there were some people that might have been giving him some help, either out of sympathy or out of fear. Uh, and uh, much later, we've discovered that he'd built. He was he was certainly no woodsman, but he'd built sort of some teepees out of trees in the woods, sort of a string of I think two or three of them, and he would stay in different ones at different times. Uh, we would also find out much later that there was a large bed and breakfast that had been a mansion once belonged to a timber baron in the area called the Governor's Mansion. And it had a freezer out in sort of a, a closed-in veranda. And he would sneak up onto this veranda at night, break into that freezer, and steal food from it. Uh, so he was sort of living off of the land in and around the area while he was hunting, doing these attacks. So there was this build-up all over the summer, but it was only a build-up uh, that was invisible to us because we didn't understand the context. We didn't understand what was going on. You know, people every once in a while would say, you think it's Legere? I'd go, why would it be Legere? Like, he's long gone. He's a you know professional B&E guy. Uh, there'd be no explanation as to why he would be bothering himself with all of these attacks. So we just sort of naively went on. It was a lovely summer. And, you know, the fall in Miramichi can be remarkably beautiful. The leaves are starting to turn gold and red and yellow, and we're heading towards Thanksgiving, and the weather was good. And then, you know, all of a sudden, hell broke loose, almost literally. Many people of Miramichi believe that Alan Legere was responsible for the murder of Annie Flam. But as time passed, and summer turned into fall, it was assumed by most that he'd since fled the area. It wouldn't take long for the community of Miramichi to find its way back to normalcy. But as Rick just alluded to, hell was about to be unleashed on Miramichi. Five months after the flam killing, Legere would strike again. In a case eerily similar to the flam murder, this one would start with the report of a house fire during an early October morning. And again, firefighters would find evidence of extreme sexual violence. Yes, what happened was, in the middle of October, uh, we got a telephone call saying there had been a double murder uh, the night before at a home on a corner in a place called uh, Engine Town. Engine being engine. It was an old area where trains used to sort of shuffle back and forth. And it was maybe 200, 250 meters from the front door of our newspaper office. What had happened was the fire department got called that there was a fire and they came rushing to this home. It wasn't very far from the fire station, actually. Uh, and they rushed into it. They small town, so they knew who lived in the home. It was a relatively dark street because back then there weren't a lot of street lights. And one of the firemen was sort of on his hands and knees going up the stairs trying to check for survivors and that was when they realized uh, that there were two bodies there and they uh, they started to realize pretty quickly that this wasn't just a fire story this was a murder story we're not going to find out of course until trial but what actually had happened was Linda and Donna Donnie our sisters both middle-aged sort of in their 40s uh, had been living in this small little house uh, for some time uh, Linda had gone out that evening Donna was still home and Legere, who had been creeping through the area, uh, and was also known as the Peeping Tom from his younger years, had peeked in the window. Now, of course, it's dark at night, and if you've ever tried looking out from your lit house to through a window into the dark at night, you can't see anything. So she couldn't see that he was looking at her through the window. Linda was out with some friends, and she walked down the street, this short little street, sort of downhill. There was no street light there, and she didn't know and a neighbor would later report hearing what they thought was a ladder being sort of kicked, a ladder laying on the ground. They heard the noise, didn't think much of it. But what had happened was Linda had walked into her yard, didn't know that Alan Legere was there, and walked right into him. He came at her and hit her, probably only once, hit her square in the face, knocked her cold. 
then he turned and bolted, and that's when he bumped into the ladder and rushed the back door of the house, burst through the back door into the home, and there was Donna. Donna fought. I've seen the pictures. Uh, there were blood stains where he had fought, fought with her, one on the stairs, a very small house. Obviously, she fought her way up the stairs, and there was a halo the size of a pumpkin of blood halfway up the stairs in the wall where he'd obviously grabbed her and slammed her against the wall. There were a set of fingerprints, bloody fingerprints, on the back of the door where she tried to get back into the room at one point. Uh, he had beaten her uh, basically to death. He put her in the bed. She was sexually assaulted, and then she was tucked in. Uh, he had lots of time. There was no hurry. He was in exactly the scenario he had dreamed of. Uh, he went outside. He brought Linda Donnie, who was still alive but unconscious, but she was breathing, back into the home. He spent you know, whatever amount of time he spent in the house, and then he set the house on fire, and he left. Linda Donnie died of smoke inhalation, because I've seen the autopsy results. Donna was already dead. Uh, somebody would report a few a little while later that they met some guy walking across the bridge late at night who said, hi, how are you, and calmly kept on walking by. Um, but what appears to have happened was the fire didn't catch quite properly the first time he came back to the house. So he must have been watching from nearby, wanted to watch the house burn. And once it was truly caught and the fire department showed up, that was when somebody said they saw this guy walking across the bridge. Hmm. Incredible. Now, at, at this point, uh, it's still not certain that it's Alan Legere that's responsible for these crimes? Nobody thought it was Alan Legere. I mean, at this point, we're now into a, a murder in the spring, a series of attacks through the summer and fall, and now a second murder. So there's certainly suspicions, but I think we were in denial. I, I, you know, as the editor of the local newspaper, we were giving this very heavy, heavy coverage, but we didn't think it was Legere. Uh, the assumption was that it was just some other attack. Uh, part of it was, and I know it's hard for people to understand this now, one, there was no internet, there were no cell phones, no Twitter, no Facebook, no YouTube, none of that stuff, but there was also no DNA. You take it for granted today that police would go looking for DNA evidence, but that didn't exist. That whole technology uh, was barely being born, had never been used in Canada in, in a murder case. In fact, the only murder case I'm familiar with during that time period when it was used was a very famous case in, in in Great Britain, and the serial killer who was captured using DNA evidence, honestly, his last name really was Pitchfork. His name was Colin Pitchfork. So DNA had never been used in a murder case at all in North America, Canada, or the United States. So I, there was DNA evidence that was rounded up and was sent off to the RCMP lab in Ottawa, but it was... It, you're not getting it back. This isn't CSI Miami. You don't get it back 15 minutes later. This would go on for weeks and weeks while they're trying to find it. And the assumption was that you know whoever the attacker was, we didn't know who it was, but we weren't assuming that it was Alan Legere. And then I was driving to work on a Thursday morning, I think it was, and I bumped into someone whose name I'm not going to tell you, uh, who said that the DNA evidence was back and it was Lashir. And that was my headline that day. I came into the office, and I told the new staff, I said, the DNA says it's Lashir. Now, to give you a sense of how little police understood DNA evidence at the time, they assumed that when the DNA evidence came back, that they would have literally, literally, a picture of the person that they could post uh, instead of simply, you know, bars on a barcode, they mm. thought they'd actually have the person's picture. <laughs> so that was how little the RCMP, local RCMP back then, understood the whole process. But it was at that moment, I think, when we broke that story, that people understood, uh, one, it was Legere, and two, he wasn't leaving. That he intended to stay, and he intended to kill, and he intended to keep on killing, and he intended to attack, and he intended to keep on attacking, for as long as he possibly could. And this must have been when the, the intense fear and the panic really swept hold in the Miramichi area. What happened was, in that five, six weeks, that the panic level went from really almost nonchalant to people wouldn't go out their doors. Halloween, in terms of going out door to door, was cancelled. Uh, children were instead taken to local halls and they were given their candy there. I recall uh, a friend of the family uh, needed a drive back one night to her home. We got to the door and she said, I'm not getting out of the car. And I said, what do you mean? This is your house. And she said, 
I'm going to stay in the car with the engine running and the doors locked. You go in and check the house, check under all the beds, checking all the closets, and check the basement. When you come out and say it's okay, I'll go into my house and lock all the doors. That wasn't unusual. That was actually quite typical. Uh, a good friend of mine at the time, he ran a local club, and his business went completely in the tank because no one would go out after dark. People were petrified of absolutely everything. Yeah. The, the cancellation of Halloween, that just seems so un, un, unreal to me. I couldn't imagine as a kid my parents telling me we're not ha- having Halloween this year. The, yep. Were the children aware of what was going on and why Halloween was changed this year? Children certainly were aware because if you're old enough to understand who the boogeyman is, you're old, old enough to understand if somebody gives the boogeyman a name, and that name is Alan Legere. Uh, they may not have understood the details, but they understood that their parents were afraid you know, they were starting to understand that their parents wouldn't allow them to go outside after dark. Their parents wouldn't go outside after dark. They would hear snippets of conversation. In some homes, they would start to get used to the idea that there was now a scanner in their house and they could hear the police calls. Uh, one friend of the family couldn't get a scanner in New Brunswick, and he had to order one from Yarmouth, Nova Scotia, and have it shipped to him because he wanted a scanner so that he could follow what was, what was going on. After the Donnie killings, everything didn't sort of stop for five or six weeks. Uh, now we understood that Legere was in town. Now the RCMP understood that he was there. And the manhunt begins to intensify and intensify and intensify. At one point, in fact, my, uh, my crime reporter came in in the morning and she detailed what had happened the night before. Uh, she had heard a report that there had been a manhunt running through uh, one section of what's now the city of Miramichi and was Chatham and that a, a, someone had been running through the area and the police had been chasing him and they couldn't catch him and they were pretty sure it was Legere. I said, all right, I want you to do a timeline. I want you to find out exactly what happened. So she spent the entire day on deadline putting, piecing the story together. What had happened was it was Legere. The first report uh, that we could get from it was that one uh, of the places that he stopped, he broke into a car and then broke into the dash of the car, apparently looking for identification. And we were quite certain that the home had belonged to a member of the jury from his 1987 trial. But we weren't absolutely sure. And we were struggling to confirm this. And then partway through this morning, a woman that we knew showed up. And she was the wife of one of the jurors. And she begged us not to say that the incident had happened at her former home. They had since moved. The police chased this person that night uh, from that home. They were chasing him through the town. A lot of this was on the scanners, so people were listening to it in real time. They weren't able to catch him. And the story that was was told later was a an officer with a police dog at one point was chasing what he thought was someone uh, along the railway tracks, leaving the town, heading it back into the woods. And the report was that the, eventually the officer, the dog, was off the leash, and the dog ran up to the guy, and Legere wasn't afraid of dogs, and so there was no confrontation. But what the officer said was, at one point, uh, the person turned and very calmly and matter-of-factly said, look, if you don't stop following me, I'm going to have to kill you. There was no emotion. There was no excitement. It was just, how are you today, and isn't the weather fine? It was just a flat tone. He said it was the most chilling thing he'd ever experienced. And Legere escapes back into the woods. Well, now it's deadline day for us that following morning, and our reporter scrambling around getting all this information from various sources. She calls the RCMP and asks them, you know, what can you report on what happened last night? And they say, we have nothing to report. And she was just enraged. So we put that in the story. And the RCMP started to take serious heat. You know, we were getting quotes from them that he's getting help in the community and that, you know, how can they expect uh, to catch this guy if the community isn't going to help us? And that was seen by people, you know, terrified people in the community as blaming us for the fact that this guy hadn't been caught. So at one point, there's a meeting in the old town hall. It's packed. There'd be three, 400 people there. It was meant to get in the room. The rest were overflowing out the doors. And they were yelling at the police. And at one point, a, a former hockey player who was known for being a good fighter stood up and pointed, wagged his finger at the front of the room at this group of RCMP officers and town mayor and whatnot sitting at the front of the room in front, you know, at a table and said, if that guy comes anywhere near me and my family, I'm going to shoot first and ask questions later, and got a standing ovation from the room. So it was full-scale panic. 
everybody was absolutely terrified. And then came that day in November, and it was a Thursday, and I had stopped at a gas station on the way to work, and I was uh, somebody who I'm not going to tell you pulled up and gave me additional information, and the additional information was they were convinced, because at this point there were RCMP officers from all over the place, you know, scouring the area. They'd flown them in from other places. There were dogs. Eventually there would be a helicopter with a heat uh, monitoring device in the front of it. There were SWAT teams dressed in black with submachine guns, or looked like submachine guns. And I was told while I was pumping gas that they were convinced that they had Legere bottled up in what was called the Chatham Head area of, of what's now the city of Miramichi. That he was in there somewhere, but they didn't know where. And I went into the office and promptly wrote that story, and I had it set on the front page, and I was talking to another reporter from CBC, and I mentioned this to him, and he said, look, I've got a contact in the RCMP uh, who could confirm this. Would it be all right if I called him? And I said, yes. So he called the guy, and the guy uh, said, listen, can I talk to your editor? So I went on the phone. And because the CBC reporter vouched for him, I was willing to listen to this RCMP officer. And, and he said, look, I know you have this story. And I said, look, I'll read you the story. So I read him the story, and he, there was this long sort of whistling breath at the other end. And he says, he says, well, you got it all. He says, look, could you do me a favor? There were two sentences he asked me to remove from it. Uh, and this is before newspapers were laid out on computers. We used knives and wax and pieces of paper. And I literally cut the pieces out of the story by cutting them out of the story with a very sharp exacto knife. Uh, and if you look at that front page to this day, you can see where I sort of had to space the story out because I'd cut two paragraphs out of it. And the two paragraphs had referred to a specific area. He said, but he, we think he's getting copies of the newspapers. He might read this and he might figure it out and somehow slip through our net. So I made those cuts. We published it. I drove home thinking, wow, I've got the biggest scoop of the day. Fabulous. And at what, 7, 7.30, I got a phone call at our house out in the country saying they discovered the body of Father James Smith. He'd been slaughtered in his rectory. And I mean slaughtered, right next to his church. As Halloween passed without incident, Many began feeling relief, but there was no escaping the fact that terror had been infused into the pulse of the community. As the people of Miramichi were busy preparing for what they feared would be a long winter being preyed upon by Alan Legere, there would be yet another murder. And although all of his crimes were terrible, violent, and disgusting, the murder of Father James Smith, it was especially brutal. Father Smith wasn't a logical target for Alan Legier. Now, Father Smith was about the right age, but he was male. Now, there had been reports, and I've never seen anything really confirmed it, that uh, there had been a confrontation between Father Smith and Alan Legier at one point in the church, and Legier had been ordered out of the church. It's, it's entirely possible, but uh, I, I never saw anything that confirmed it. What seems more likely is that he was trapped in the area by the RCMP and the police, and that he broke into the house with Father Smith there, uh, to get away from the police. Once he was in, however, the serial killer in him blossomed and Father Smith was, was tortured. Uh, he was beaten, he was slashed with a knife. Apparently, part of the attempt was there was a large walk-in safe in the house and Legere thought there was a bunch of money in it, there wasn't, and he wanted the combination for it. Um, but that seemed to be more the excuse. Uh, photos from the scene show that the torture happened in the kitchen back of the house, that there was blood about up, almost up to waist high lining the walls of the, of the kitchen, uh, that Legere had at one point, this is a 70-year-old man he'd attacked, Legere had jumped on Father Smith's chest and broken all of his ribs, disconnecting them from his sternum, and there were reports, and I didn't know this was possible, that he had beaten him so badly about the head and the face that the connecting points between the face and the skull behind it uh, had snapped and the face had sagged like a Halloween mask sort of toward the side. It was horrendous. It was absolutely horrendous. Uh, the, the 
street was sealed at the bottom of the of the parking lot, so you could look up the hill and see the house. It was all lit up. There were police everywhere. There were people everywhere, and it was Thursday night. And I had this big scoop saying we thought we had him sealed up. And they had him sealed up in a particular area, and they were right. They did. But by the time they they came to the house, because what happened was he didn't show up for a prayer meeting, and some people finally came over and thought maybe he had a heart attack. Peeked in the window and saw the blood, then called the police. But Legere had stolen Smith's car and headed north to the city of Bathurst, small city of Bathurst, about an hour, 45-minute drive away, uh, where he jumped on a train and fled towards Montreal. And and this was what would set off the chain of events that would eventually lead to his would eventually lead to his capture. Yeah, Lashier skates. Uh, he drove to Bathurst. In fact, he drove by what was then the home that I lived in. He he, he would mention that later. I still have the letter. Uh, he'd mentioned my house, and he drove to Bathurst. He got rid of the boots, leaving them behind because, of course, they had been covered in blood, uh, and jumped on the train. Now, they found Father Smith's car fairly quickly, so they assumed that Legere might be on the train, and they would send out a fax, and the fax would mention, you should be looking for a guy that looks like this and look for a tattoo, I think of an eagle on one arm, but there was some sort of confusion about which arm and at one point, the police boarded the train, were walking along, and asking people to sort of roughly match the description if they would mind sort of pulling up their sleeve. And this guy very nonchalantly did pull up his sleeve. There's no tattoo, and they went on. It was Legere. That you could stay that calm after all the things that had gone on is testimony, if nothing else before it was, that he was clearly sociopathic. A sociopath sort of lacks typical human emotions. They're very flat in their emotional palate. And for him to murder someone, flee, jump on a train, and then be you know, investigated by police, searched by police in essence, and show no physical signs that the police could read that he was under any set of any kind of distress, tells you that this guy was clearly sociopathic. Uh, he had some money that he'd stolen and some jewelry that he'd stolen, and he went to a very high-end hotel in Montreal and stayed there for a few days. Um, but he just didn't know what to do with himself, and he was like a predator being drawn back to his hunting ground. He eventually returned to New Brunswick. It was like something from a uh, a movie. He ends up in St. John. He's in a bar. He writes a very long, rambling, self-pitying letter, which was reprinted actually in one of the two books, in the second book that, that we uh, published about him. And eventually he decides he's going to go back to Miramichi, where he doesn't have a vehicle, and he calls the cab, he gets in the cab, and he says, I want to go to Miramichi. Well, that's a drive of about three hours. But he shows the guy the money and says, I'm willing to pay. And it's winter, it's late, it's November. And the cabbie calls, gets permission, and off they go. They head to a head up north. Somewhere in there, the cabbie realizes, Legere tells him, that he is Al Legere, which means that now this cabbie's absolutely petrified. As they're driving north, they're driving into a snowstorm. Winter started very early that year. It was bitterly cold by November. And at uh, one point, the cab goes off the road, and a good Samaritan pulls over to say, are you okay? Do you need any help? The good Samaritan's a female off-duty RCMP officer. Legere then points his weapon at the two of them, and he kidnaps both of them. They get back in the road, and they end up at a store in the community of uh, Sussex, New Brunswick. They need gas. So he takes the keys, tells them, you know, don't leave, and he goes in to pay for the gas. The RCMP officer is no dummy, and she says, cabbies normally have a second set of keys. Do you have a second set of keys? The guy says, yes. She says, get the keys and get us out of here so that we can call for backup. Legere comes back out. The car's gone. So he does the next best thing. He walks over to a tractor trailer. It was a guy by the name of Golding, I think was his name. Of him, and kidnaps a tractor trailer, a transport truck, with the driver, and continues his drive north in the snowstorm. They get to Miramichi, and the community is so suspicious at this point, it's early in the morning, it's 5 o'clock, and there's a tractor trailer, a transport truck, on a road where normally you don't see these things, and the person calls the police. And the police show up, surround the vehicle, uh, the driver jumps out and says, it's not me, it's not me, he's in the truck, he's in the truck, waving his hands because he's scared they're going to shoot him, I suppose. And then Legere steps out and says, yeah, it's me, you got me. And then coolly and calmly, uh, they order him to lie down on the ground, but then he's all excited and hyped up, and he doesn't lie flat. He starts to get up, and a police officer kicks him in the face, 
to get him down, and that's why he ended up with a black eye. <laughs> so that was how he was captured. Wow. And as, as the news spread of his, his capture, there, there must have been a great sense of relief. The, the sense in the community, I mean, literally church bells rang in Miramichi. Uh, sort of that old, very medieval idea of ringing the church bells in celebration. Uh, all of a sudden, you know, the bars were full at night. Uh, you could see the sense of relaxation on people's faces. He was caught. The hunting was over. With Legere now in custody and the entire province breathing a much-needed sigh of relief, it was now time for Alan Legere's second murder trial. The first being his conviction in the Glendenning case that we heard about at the beginning of the episode. Now, Rick will walk us through this trial in a moment, but I will say that just as Legere's crimes were unprecedented, so was the trial. And not only due to the nature of the crimes. As you'll soon hear, his case marked the first time that DNA was used as evidence in Canada. charged with four, four murders, Flam, the Donnie sisters, and Father Smith. Uh, Father Smith was physical evidence, in particular that boot and the sort of the mark of the nail on his foot that matched the spot on the boot. Uh, DNA was an important part of the evidence in the other three attacks. That second trial is the first time that DNA evidence was ever used in a murder trial in North America. Uh, in essence, DNA was in trial along with Alan Legere in that case because DNA was used as evidence in the murders of the women, not in the priest case. And the trial for a significant period of time was highly technical with experts flown in, including a, a professor by the name of Kenneth Kidd from Yale University who had stopped testifying in cases uh, until it was explained to him that this, what this particular case was, that it would be the precedent-setting case for DNA for all of North America, and Kidd uh, agreed to go from Yale and New Haven, wherever it is in the United States, and came up and testified in that particular case. Long parts of the trial were, were actually quite boring, and Legere didn't have a high tolerance for boredom, and he would act out. He would start to yell and scream so that he would be sent out of the courtroom and locked up in another room with a closed-circuit television so he wouldn't have to sit in the trial uh, during the boring parts. He didn't testify the second time around. And the other moment in the trial that had the RCMP in a tremendous fit was they realized at one, moment, at one point, Legere had this, these women, groupies, that had followed him around. They were sort of like Charles Manson's women who followed this guy around, I guess. They were somehow attracted to this fellow. They realized that one of them that they termed the blonde was hanging out with one of the jurors. And there was tremendous panic because, of course, if this person was influencing the jury, you could end up with a hung jury. So, so there was a whole police surveillance operation around this juror and this very attractive woman. And the jury was ordered out of the room at one point, and all this evidence was presented to the judge in a voir dire uh, a hearing. And uh, you know, there was real concerns that the trial would be polluted, the jury would be polluted. Now, they did manage to continue with the trial, and he was convicted on all four counts, with DNA uh, being a key part of the evidence in that trial, so that now when you watch CSI Miami or CSI whatever it is, or any of those murder shows, and they talk about uh, DNA evidence, it's all based, all based originally on the Alan Legere second murder trial for those killings, in which he was convicted of four more murders, and given four life terms, no chance to parole for 25 years, he'll never get out. Uh, he's now in general population. He was just moved from a special handling unit in Quebec uh, to general population in the Edmonton area, I believe. He had set a record by years. For a number of years, he was kept in special isolation, in essence, a prison, within a prison. And he would be, his birthday on Friday the 13th of February, uh, so he's just over 68 right now. With Legere now safely behind bars and his time preying on helpless victims far behind him, one still wonders what would happen if he was ever released. When considering his mental state, I find a threatening letter he sent Rick McLean after his second conviction especially troubling. I'll end this episode with Rick reading from the letter he received, possibly after it was smuggled out of prison by one of Legere's groupies. Perhaps it was even the attractive blonde one.
And now you're you're so tied with his case due to your books and all of your your writing and at the time and covering it. Have you ever heard from Alan Legere personally? <laughs> In fact, I'm just going to pull a book off my bookshelf. It's a copy of the original book Terror. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to put on a pair of reading glasses. I'm going to take out a one-page letter that I received. It was addressed to Mr. R. McLean. My name is misspelled. And the letter came from Renews, which is where the maximum security prison was. I got a phone call at the office one day. It was from my wife. And my wife said, there's a letter came for you, and she had opened it, and she was extraordinarily upset. And I said, what's going on? And she said, well, I'll read it to you. So here's what the letter said. It said, hi, dear, how are you? I had such a nice time last summer, seeing your nice place. You are such a lovely wife, and I just love that new baby. So quiet and bouncy. I know you spend a lot of time by yourself, so I know you won't mind me visiting you next year. Until then, I'll say I see you, I'll see you again. Love, Nick. It was a threat to my wife. It was signed by Nick, which, as you know, is an old name for the devil. And he had driven by our house right after he'd murdered the priest because the house we lived on in at the time was on the highway leading directly to Bathurst. I did have a beautiful, bouncy baby girl who's now pushing 30. And it was an obvious threat. And what had happened was Legere had some groupies, uh, women who were for some reason or another attracted to him. And the speculation is that uh, he used one of them, them to smuggle the note out of the prison and then mailed it from a nearby post office. So that was the first letter I got from him. I, I received one directly from this year for a few years afterwards, um, but I made a point of never responding to them, and I think at some point he got bored. Uh, actually, it's funny because when we were working on the second book, Terror's End, uh, I did an interview with a Canadian expert. His name is Elliot Layton, a uh, professor at Memorial University in Newfoundland, an anthropologist, uh, who had done a terrific book called Hunting Humans. He'd done work for New Scotland Yard, and he'd studied serial killers. And part of his belief was that social pressures were sort of behind their their attacks. And I wanted to interview him for the book. And I managed to track him down, and uh, we had a lovely conversation. I always find people that do research into serial killers are some of the jolliest people. And when it was when it was done, he, I mentioned that I was getting letters from Legere, and if he wanted copies, I'd be glad to photocopy them and send them to him. And he said, well, I, I'm still getting letters from Paul Bernardo, the, the serial killer from Ontario, uh, the husband of Carla Hamoka. And he said, if you're interested, I can get you on his mailing list. And I said, no, thanks. I'm already on the mailing list of one serial killer. I really don't want to be on the mailing list for another one. The story of Alan Legere, for the most part, stops there. At present, he's of course still behind bars and it still looks reasonably certain that the now much older and presumably weaker Alan Legere won't see freedom anytime soon. And I for one hope that never changes. And with that, we'll conclude this episode of Nighttime. If you want to dig deeper into the story of Alan Legere, I plan to release several companion pieces on my patron feed you may be interested in. Of course, you can join me and my best friend Randy for an all-new Nightcap post-show discussion covering this episode. But in addition to that, as I mentioned at the start of this episode, this story was originally covered several years ago. In that original two-part series, although the production was much rougher, I did dig much deeper into Alan's life before his crimes. The original two-part series is no longer on the main feed, but I'll post it in the patron feed for anyone interested in hearing it. You can subscribe to that at patreon.com slash nighttime podcast. Now, I'll end by giving thanks to those who assisted in this episode. A huge thank you to our guest, Rick McLean. Rick, I look up to you tremendously. Your work telling the story of Alan Legere, both as it happened, in your books, and here on this show, are quite simply masterful. I'm honored to have had you on Nighttime. Next, a shout out to Vox Somnia and Paragon Cause for providing the musical and ambient themes for this episode. You can check out both of these great artists by following the link in the show notes. And for the biggest thanks of all, I want to thank anyone who's listening, as without you, I'd have no excuse to spend so much of my free time on this show.
for anyone out there who wants more nighttime, check out the Patreon campaign. For a dollar a month, you can access the ad-free premium feed, which provides early releases of the episodes. And then, for a couple dollars more, you can access the Nightcap After Show episodes in which I and a guest climb even further down the rabbit hole. You can join by visiting patreon.com slash nighttimepodcast. And with that said, I'd like to thank the current patrons of the show and welcome the newest members to the group. Kaylee, Linz, Susan, Aiden, Christine, Kim Lake, and the folks behind the Murder in My Family podcast, I sincerely appreciate your generous support of Nighttime. For anyone else who'd like to support the show but can't help financially, you can give me a big hand by telling your friends about me and leaving a positive review on Apple Podcasts or Equivalent. If any of you listening want to stay up to date with my activities on and off the show, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I use the handle at NighttimePod. And if you have any story ideas or want to give feedback on the show, I'd love to hear from you at NighttimePodcast at gmail.com. Now until next time, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte. Copyright Jordan Bonaparte. During the Leisure Manhunt, the power company had to bring in extra crews to put up dust to dawn lights. Lights that automatically turn on when it's dark. Uh, when I was interviewed by a reporter from Canadian Press, I had coined them Legier lights. And in fact, that became the headline for it, Legier lights. And the idea was that people were getting these lights. We had one in our house, at our house for years, our new house. Uh, so it would light up the backyard after dark. We got rid of ours about three years ago because at night I enjoyed sitting in the back yard and looking at the stars but the Legere light was shining this orange sodium light in our backyard and I hated the look of it so finally we called the company and this was only two or three years ago so that would be almost 30 years ago from when it was installed and finally had the thing removed but there are whole areas including the yard where the Donnies lived there's now a Legere light in that yard it's still there to this day